You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Before we go to the Word of God, let's go to the God of the Word in prayer. Our Father, it is uh, our joy to stand before you this morning and to sing our praise. And you have met us now in worship, and we pray that you would meet us in your Word. We ask that you would be our vision, that you would give to us a vision to see in your Word wonderful things. Help us to see Christ. Help us to see your plan, your purpose. And help us this morning, Father, to be encouraged, to be edified, and to be equipped with your word. Rebuke us where that is necessary and grant, Father, that our time spent here would be profitable and that you would glorify yourself by coming in power through your word and the ministry of the Spirit of God. In Jesus' name, amen. We have finished looking at the fourth of Paul's four journeys recorded in the book of Acts. We are in Acts 28, so you'll need your Bibles open to there if you haven't already. We've looked at the fourth of Paul's journeys in the book of Acts, but it's not the last trip that he takes. Uh, There is another trip that Paul takes after the book of Acts. It's not recorded in Scripture, but we know that he took one, and we'll get to that in due time, and, and we'll sort of cover what happened after the book of Acts. But we have looked at the fourth and final trip that is recorded in the book of Acts that brings Paul from Caesarea to Rome. Now, typically, we sort of categorize Paul's journeys in two ways. We say that he had first, what we, the first three were what we conventionally call his missionary journeys, right? The first missionary journey to the regions of Galatia, the second missionary journey, which got him into Europe, and the third missionary journey, which he stayed most of the time in the city of Ephesus. And then we have what we typically call Paul's uh, prisoner voyage or his voyage to Rome. So you have three missionary journeys and a voyage to Rome. Now let me ask you a question. This is not a trick question, so you, you can nod if you want or shake your head if you want. I promise there's no trick, and no subtlety in this question. But here's the question. And I think that you know enough of Paul and enough about Acts and enough about some things that we've covered in recent weeks that you can answer this question. And here it is. If Paul had not been arrested in Acts chapter 21, would there have been a fourth missionary journey from what you know? If Paul had not been arrested in Acts 21, would there have been a fourth missionary journey? Now, if you're answering yes or nodding your head, then you're right on. You know how we know that? Because that was Paul's intentions. In fact, he was going to take up the offering in Achaia and Macedonia, go back to Jerusalem, give that to the saints there because they were needy. And then Paul wrote to the Romans and he said, after I do that, I'm coming back to you. I'm going to come to Rome. And then from Rome, he was heading toward where? Spain. That was That was his vision. That was where he was going with the gospel. Now, I'm of the impression and I'm of the opinion that Paul took four missionary journeys recorded in the book of Acts. The first, the second, the third. You know when I think the fourth one was? He was a missionary to Rome. And he was a missionary in chains. And he was going to Rome in chains under armed escort by the Lord's grace to take the gospel to the heart of the Roman Empire. You get a perspective of how Paul felt about that when you begin to read some of the letters that he wrote while he was in prison. Ephesians, for instance. Ephesians was written at the end of the book of Acts during that two years that Paul spent in Rome under house arrest 
Ephesians is one of the books that he wrote during that period of time. And in the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, he says to the Ephesians, Pray at all times in the Spirit for all the saints, but especially for me, that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth, that I may speak as I ought to speak, and that I may boldly proclaim the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Look at that phrase. Ambassador in chains. Earlier in Ephesians, chapter 3, Paul says, I am a prisoner of Christ. In Philippians, he makes reference to his imprisonment in Christ. Now, what was Paul's perspective? Do you think Paul thought that he had taken three missionary journeys and then he was a prisoner bound for Rome and he had sort of this superfluous journey? We kind of think that Paul's missionary career was cut short, but I don't think that's right at all. I think Paul had four missionary journeys, three of them and then the journey to Rome. He was a missionary going to Rome. That was his perspective. An ambassador in chains, a prisoner of Christ, my imprisonment in Christ. You say, Paul, how can you be a missionary? You were chained up. Oh, those were Christ's chains. Christ put those on my wrists. Christ put the shackles on my feet. That was his perspective. I'm an ambassador in chains. I am an ambassador for Jesus Christ. And I'm in chains. But Paul, you, you, you're shackled to a Roman guard. You're shackled to a Roman centurion. You're chained to him for two years. Yeah, I understand that. Isn't that a great mission field to be chained to a guy who's uh, your mission field? What an opportunity that is, right? I got an armed escort from Caesarea to Rome. Nobody would attack me. Why? He was surrounded by Roman soldiers. The Lord said, I'm going to send you to Rome. And guess what, Paul? I'm going to send you with an attachment of Roman soldiers to make sure that you're utterly protected. Boy, that's grace, isn't it? Three missionary journeys or four? I think there was four. Conventionally, we say he had three missionary journeys because we think he was free. But, you know, Paul really had four missionary journeys. The fourth one went to Rome. And that's where the book of Acts ends. But he was an ambassador in chains. Paul said, Christ has called me to go to Rome. He has put me in chains. He's given me an escort. He sent me to the heart of Rome. And I'm there as his ambassador to present the gospel and to preach Christ. And guess what? When we get to Rome, what do we find Paul doing? Presenting the gospel and preaching Christ. Romans, or sorry, Acts chapter 28, beginning at verse 17, there's verses 17 through 31. This is the, we're at the home stretch now. I know some of you, it's been so long since you've seen the end of a book of the Bible between adult Sunday school class and Acts that you don't know what to do when you see the end of a book. You might feel like you're coming to the end of your life or the edge of the world and you're, you're not sure what comes next. The, let me give you an overview of the last portion of the book of Acts for you, this last chapter 28, the last of 28. Verses 17 through 31 gives us basically two encounters that Paul has in witnessing and evangelizing and sort of a a set of summary verses. Verse 17 through 22 is Paul's first encounter, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. That's sort of Paul's introduction to the Jewish leaders in Rome. Then verses 23 through verse 29 is a second encounter that Paul had. It's evangelistic in nature where he is sharing the gospel. We're going to look at that next week. And then there is a summary passage, verses 30 to 31, where Luke kind of says, this went on for two years, and sort of, here's it, here's my conclusion. So today we're going to look at verses 17 through 22. It really has to do with Paul introducing himself to the Roman Jews, the Jews that were in the city of Rome, and that's, we're going to focus on that. There are two sort of distinct things that Luke lets us in on. First, let's just hang our thoughts on these two points. First is Paul's introduction to the Jews in Rome, and then second, the Jews' interest in Paul. And you'll see both of these unfold. So verse 17, we'll read verse 17 through 20, and then we'll step back and we'll take a look at it. After these, after three days, Paul called together those who were the leading men of the Jews, 
And when they had come together, he began saying to them, Brethren, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they had examined me, they were willing to release me because there was no ground for putting me to death. But when the Jews objected, I was forced to appeal to Caesar, not that I had any accusation against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I requested to see you and to speak with you, for I am wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. That's Paul's introduction of himself to the Jews in Rome. Look at verse 17. After three days. How quick did Paul get busy in the city of Rome? Three days. Friends, you don't even have the U-Haul unpacked after being in a new location for three days. He hasn't even picked out the color for the drapes, hasn't made the bed. And that's barely enough time to find rented quarters and to get moved in and to get your stuff there and secure things and meet new people and, and sort of get settled. But Paul, before he even has the U-Haul boxes unpacked, before he's even returned to the U-Haul, he's already planning his, his evangelization of the Jews in Rome. It only took him three days and he called to himself the leading men of the Jews who were in the city of Rome. Now from Jewish historians we know there were about 40,000 or up to 40,000 Jews in the city of Rome during Paul's day. Now there's a little bit of history with Jews in Rome and it's kind of interesting because it plays out in the book of Acts. Do you remember back in Acts chapter 18, the emperor Claudius had expelled all the Jews from Rome. That's how Paul met Priscilla and Aquila. Acts chapter 18, they had left Italy because the emperor had said, hey, get out of here, to all the Jews in the city of Rome. There had been some civil unrest and he thought the Jews were probably at the center of it. So he kicked all of the Jews out of Rome. And so those Jews who were in Rome left their businesses, their houses, everything, all their friends, their community, their jobs, all of that. And they took off and they scattered. Priscilla and Aquila made their way to, to Corinth where Paul ran into them. But then we get to Acts chapter 19 and we find out that Paul said, after I do all of these things, going to collecting the offering and visiting Jerusalem, I must see Rome. Why? Because Claudius had died. Nero had taken over as emperor. And with Claudius' death was the death of all of his edicts and all of his sort of commands to get the Jews out. Now the Jews could come back. So here we are four or five years after Claudius had, had ejected the Jews from Rome. The Jews go back into Rome. And by the time Paul gets there, there's upwards of 40,000 Jews that are back living in the imperial city. Jewish historians also say there were as many as 10, 11, or sometimes 12, some people say 12, different synagogues in the city of Rome. So when Paul calls all the leaders of the Jews to himself, for this introduction, who is he calling, do you think? He's calling the leaders of the synagogues. He's calling the leaders of the synagogues. That's where you find the leading men. Now, if you've got 10, 11, 12 synagogues, and you have, let's just say on average, 3, 4, 5, maybe 7 or 8 leading men in every synagogue and amongst the Jews, how many people do you think Paul invited to his house that day for lunch? For this introduction. That's a lot of people, isn't it? All the leading men of the Jews, upwards of 40,000 Jews, and Paul has all the leadership gathered to him. Does that seem odd to you, by the way, that Paul would do that? Does that seem odd to you? Do you remember what was the first thing that Paul did when he arrived in a city on his missionary journeys? No matter what city it was, what was the first thing that Paul did? He went into the synagogue, right? And began to reason and persuade with the Jews who were there concerning Jesus from the Old Testament law and the prophets. Well, can Paul go to the synagogues in Rome? He can't. He's under house arrest. He's chained to a guard. He can't do anything but stay in his own rented quarters. Well, if you can't go to the mission field, then what's the second best thing? Bring the mission field to you. So Paul sends out word to all the leading men of the Jews, I would like a meeting with you. And all the leaders of the synagogues and all the leading men of the Jews show up at Paul's home and Paul takes that opportunity to introduce himself to you. You know, that's what God does to you. Most of you here, and I would say all of you who are sitting here, because we don't have any missionaries here who are with us, 
All of you who are sitting here, God has not chosen to send you to Bangladesh or India or Russia or Europe or Hawaii as a missionary. He hasn't chosen to do that for any of you. So you know what the next best thing is? God brings a mission field to you. So he brings them and puts them in the cubicle that's right next door to yours or across the desk from you at the, the lady who's across the way from you. Or he brings the Jehovah's Witness to your door or the Mormon to your door or uh, the bald-headed guy's ringing the bells and burning incense in the airport. He brings all the mission field to you. That's the next best thing. Well, that's what Paul does. I can't go out, so he requests a meeting with all the Jews to come to him. And all the leading men of the Jews show up in Paul's house and then he gives his address to them. He gives his introduction to them. Now, I'm going to warn you about something. Everything from verse 17 to 20, 21, there's, there's nothing new here for us. There's no new information. All Paul is doing is he's telling his story. But what I want to do is I want to go through his story, remind you of a couple of things, but then what is interesting to me is what we can observe about Paul's conduct while he's talking to the Jews about his story. So look at verse 17. Paul called the leading men of the Jews together. They came to him, and he began saying to them, Brethren, now, he doesn't mean brethren as in brethren in Christ or brothers in Christ. He's talking nationally speaking because they're Jews. He's a Jew, so he's referring to them as far as his ethnic background. Brethren, it's a term of respect, a term of honor. Though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers. Now, what Paul's doing right there is talking about the accusations that they had raised that had led to him being in Rome. What he's going to do is he's going to tell them, here's how I came to be a prisoner in chains Here's how I came to be in Rome today. And he wants to sort of give him an overview of that to explain why it is that he's in Rome and not back in Jerusalem. So he says, though I had done nothing against our people or against our customs. Now back when Paul was arrested in the temple, do you remember what the people were accusing him of? This goes back a long ways, chapter 21. Do you remember what the accusations were? They had Paul in the temple and they grabbed a hold of him and they said, men and brethren, this is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people against our law, and against our temple. And then they beat him, and Lysias came and rescued him, and the next day when they had the official trial, they sort of crystallized those accusations down into three of them that they thought they could get to stick. And do you remember what those three accusations were? I'll give you a hint. They all started with an S, and I beat on this week after week after week after week. You got sick of hearing me say this. Sedition. Good job. The second one, sectarianism. And the third one, Sacrilege. You're a beautiful people. I want you to know that. You are a beautiful people. I couldn't remember all three of those. I had to go back and actually read the passage and try and remember what were, what were my three S words that I had to describe the accusations. Sedition, sectarianism, and sacrilege. Sedition. He was causing riots everywhere he went. Sectarianism. He's the ringleader of this sect of the Nazarenes. And sacrilege. He brought Trophimus the Ephesian into the temple, right? And he defiled this holy place. Those are the three accusations that they raised against him. Paul says, I have done nothing worthy of death and imprisonment. I have done nothing against our people or against our customs. In other words, I didn't cause a riot. I didn't lead, I'm not a leader of some sect. And I have done nothing against our customs. I've done nothing to the temple. I've done nothing against the law. And they had been circulating all of these accusations. And so Paul just sort of dispatches them and he declares his innocence. I've done nothing against any of those things. You know, you know what the Jews really, what really infuriated the Jews about Paul? It's that when he went to a city and he preached, he went into the synagogue and then he got kicked out of the synagogue, which is typically what happened. He got kicked out of the synagogue and so he evangelized Gentiles. And when Gentiles came to faith in Christ, he would baptize them and disciple them and welcome them into the church. And he didn't require Gentiles to be circumcised. And he didn't require Gentiles to keep the Sabbath. And he didn't ask Gentiles to keep the dietary laws. And he didn't ask Gentiles to keep the Mosaic Code or all the ceremonies or the feasts or the festivals or any of that. 
And this infuriated the Jews. This was the issue. This was why they hated him. This was one of the things that got right to the heart of the issue. Now, Paul never told the Jews, you can't do those things. If you're going to believe on Jesus, you can't keep the Sabbath, you can't keep the dietary laws, you can't enjoy the festivals. Paul never said that to the Jews. He would just tell the Jews, don't think that those things add to your righteousness before God because you can't be justified on the basis of the law. So you want to come to faith in Christ and live like a Jew? Fine, live like a Jew. And even Paul did that. Remember he cut his hair short and he went to the temple to make the offering of the of his hair in the temple? Do you remember that back in Acts chapter 18 and 19? Do you remember that when Paul got arrested in the temple, he was there actually going through rituals of purification himself? Why? Because he was a Jew. But he never required Gentiles to do that. And so when the Jews saw Paul evangelizing and bringing people to the Jewish Messiah, but never requiring Gentiles to act like Jews, they said, oh, he's teaching against our customs, and he's teaching against our law, and he's teaching against Moses, and he's teaching against the temple. I'll wait for you, Ray. Would you like to stand up and win? <laughs> That's okay. Teaching against the temple and against the law and against all of those things. That's how they interpreted his teaching. And so Paul just dispatches with all of that. And in complete innocence and complete truthfulness, he says, I have done nothing against the customs of our fathers, and I have done nothing against our people. Look what he says in verse 18. Verse, at the end of verse 17, I was delivered as a prisoner from the Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans, and when they had examined me, they were willing to release me because there was no ground for putting me to death. So right there, he covers all four of his trials. You remember what they were before Lysias? Lysias tried to examine him. Lysias heard him preaching on the steps. Acts chapter 23, the steps of the temple. Lysias heard his defense to the Jews. Lysias took him inside the barracks. When it came time to, to take him down to the Sanhedrin for trial, Lysias was there with him. He listened to this whole exchange between the Sadducees and the Pharisees and all of the, the dispute that took place there when they, half of them were trying to tear Paul up, half of them were trying to protect him because Paul said, I'm on trial for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. And the Pharisees said, hey, we believe in the resurrection. The Sadducees said, we don't believe in the resurrection. So half of them wanted to kill Paul, half of them wanted to protect Paul. Lysias was there for all of that, and it got all done. And Lysias writes a letter to Felix. Hey, I find nothing in this guy worthy of death or even imprisonment. He should be set free. But I'm sending him to you. You deal with him. He got to Felix. Felix tried him. Felix didn't punish him, just kept him in prison because he was afraid to release him because the Jews would have a backlash. And then after two years, Felix... Felix had had enough of it, and Felix left, and so Festus took over. Festus tried him, got to the end of that, and what did Festus say? The guy's done nothing worthy of death and imprisonment. And then Agrippa shows up, and Festus says to Agrippa, you try him, you listen to him. Brings Paul in, Paul presents his case, and Agrippa says, he's done nothing worthy of death and imprisonment. This is an innocent man. Paul says, after all those trials, I was innocent, and I'm innocent, and they were willing to release me. Now, if you're the Jews, the leading men of the Jews, and you're listening to Paul right now, in your mind you've got one big question that you want to ask him. If you're innocent, why are you here? Right? If all of these guys have declared you to be innocent, why are you here? What are you doing here? Why are you in chains? Why do you have a court date with Nero if you're innocent? I don't know if you, any of you have ever done prison ministry. There are actually... One, two, three, four, four people here that I know of that have done and do prison ministry, counting myself. There are four people in our congregation who are uh, chaplains, ministerial associates, uh, prison evangelists, whatever you want to call us. 
Um, I've never actually gone into the pods, and I've never actually gone into the cells and done any of the teaching. There are three other people here who have done that. That's far too much fun for me. But I have been in the prisons and in the jails enough and talked to enough prisoners to know that when you talk to prisoners and when you talk to people who are on trial for things, you'll find there are two things that are true of almost all of them. Number one, they found God. They found God. They read their Bible every day. Man, they are habitual saints. And they have found God in prison. Number two, they're innocent. They're innocent. Almost every prisoner. It's only the ones that God has truly made humble and has truly brought repentance to that will say, you know what, I'm guilty of what I did and I deserve this treatment. But all the other found God. You'll never find a higher concentration of innocent religious people than you will in an average prison. You'll never find a higher concentration of religious and innocent people. And here's Paul as a prisoner in chains. I'm innocent. I'm innocent. And the Jewish leaders are probably thinking to themselves, <laughs> you're innocent. You've got a court date with Nero. What are you kidding me? How do you explain the fact that you're here then? So what does Paul say? They were willing to release me, but the Jews objected and I was forced to appeal to Caesar. Now that's truly what happened, was it not? The Jews were trying to get Paul's court venue changed from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Why? So that they could plot his assassination on the way, or once he got there, find him guilty of the capital crime of desecrating the temple and have him executed. They wanted him dead. So Paul says, Festus, which is we know this is what happened, Festus wanted to sell Paul out for political purposes. Paul says, I was forced to appeal to Caesar. In other words, I'm only here in a technicality. I had to, I had to appeal to Caesar to save my life. So that's why I'm here. I've been declared innocent. They were going to release me. The only reason I'm here is because I had to appeal to Caesar to save my life. Look at verse 19. The Jews objected. I was forced to appeal to Caesar. Look how he ends it. Not that I have any accusation against my, na- my nation. Now, after Paul has talked about how he was unjustly accused, falsely accused, how he was tried and found innocent, but the Jews objected, and so he had to appeal to Caesar, and so now he's here in chains with a court date with Nero. The next question on the minds of the Jewish leadership would be this. When you stand before Caesar, what are you going to say about our people? If they have so falsely accused you and so maligned you and done all of this evil and wickedness to you, what are you going to say to our people? What are you going to say about our people to Caesar? That's why Paul ends that by saying, I have no accusation against our nation. He wants them to understand, I'm not here to accuse the Jews. I'm not here to slander my accusers. I'm not here to slander Jews. I'm not here to turn Rome against our people and play the part of victim. Poor me. Oh, me. Paul's basically saying, I'm here to declare my innocence and gain my freedom, and that's it. I'm not here to accuse our nation. I'm not the troublemaker. I'm not the one who stirred all of this up. I'm not here to bring accusations against them. I'm the defendant in this. Now what's significant here, and here's what I want you to notice. There are two things that I think you and I can learn that are important here. I want you to notice, first of all, how it is that Paul relates his case to these Jews. Now they hadn't heard anything about anything that he's told them. But do you notice the extreme modesty with which Paul tells his story? Do you notice that? Do you notice how much salacious stuff he could have, that he left out that he could have told them? I mean, he really presents his accusers and his imprisoners in the best possible light. Do you notice that? With extreme modesty, he tells them the account. And he could have included all the stuff about the, the slander in the temple. He doesn't mention being beaten in the temple, does he? I brought that up. Paul didn't mention that. He doesn't mention being beaten in the temple. He doesn't mention not one, but two plots to take his life after he had been arrested in Jerusalem. He doesn't mention that. He doesn't mention how the Jews had 
manipulated their political power over Felix and over Festus to try and get Paul released to them. doesn't mention that. doesn't mention the slander. doesn't mention the lies that they told. doesn't mention the oath that they made to kill him. It doesn't mention any of that. Paul doesn't mention any of those things. Why? Because he's not there to slander them. Paul is simply presenting his case and he is doing so in the, the best possible light. He is presenting his enemies in the best possible light. He doesn't tell him about all the evil things that he did. Listen, learn something from Paul here. If, if Paul can have people do all of the things that we have seen them do to him over the last three years since his arrest, if he can have them do that to him and he can still speak, I, in my opinion, this is glowingly of them after all that they had done to him, and you and I can do the same. Friends, watch your tongue. You have enemies. I have enemies. You have people that hate you. I have people that hate me. We all do. It's just the fact. And we have people who slander us and people who say evil things about us. Take a lesson from Paul. And when you have the opportunity, deal with grace. Paul just with tremendous restraint tells his story without making them look like the people that they were. Why? Because he can honestly say, I'm not here to bring accusation against our nation. When you and I are insulted and reviled and hated and persecuted and spit at and when people say horrible things about us, we shouldn't revile back. Not take that. Now listen, friends, when it comes to defending the gospel and naming false teachers and heretics, Paul named names. I mean, he took names and he named them. Didn't have any problem with that. But when it came to personal offenses, Paul would just say, you know what? Not in my hands. Not worried about what happens to me. The gospel, I'll go to the stump for. But not what happens to me. So with grace, he just deals with that. I think it's because of the second thing I want you to notice, and that's the love that Paul had for his brethren. His kinsmen according to the flesh. Romans chapter 9. Paul says, I want you to know, and, I, and, I, and Paul says, I swear my conscience bear me witness by the Holy Spirit that I have an unceasing love for these men. Ah, isn't that incredible? I have an unceasing love for these men in my spirit. And listen to this. I would wish that I myself would be accursed from Christ for their sake. That's love. That's supernatural love. For 15 years, they hunted him, they hated him, they hounded him. The vast majority of the things that Paul suffered, he suffered at the hands of Jews, not Gentiles, Jews. They were the ones that had him stoned. They were the ones that got him put in prison. They were the ones that got him beaten. They were the ones that tried to beat him. They were the ones that plotted to take his life. It was Jews for 15 years. And at the end of it all, Paul could say, I would wish that I myself could be separated from Christ if they could be saved. That's love. That's a supernatural love. That's the type of love that Paul had for his brethren. Look at verse 20. Here's how Paul ends his introduction. For this reason, therefore, I requested to see you and to speak with you, for I am wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. Now, if you're a Jew, and I want you to put yourself in the Jewish mindset for a second, because this that statement, friends, is just, huh, it's brilliant. Listen to this. If you're a Jew, when Paul says, for this reason, I've requested to see you, I want to speak with you, because listen, brethren, I am in these chains for the sake of the hope of Israel. You know what that does to any self-respecting, God-loving Jew? It makes them want to jump on Paul's side. What? You're wearing those chains for the hope of our nation? He's a patriot? Yep. He's orthodox? Yep. He's in prison for what? Causing a riot? No, Paul says, it's because... I'm standing for the hope of our nation. Now, what was the hope for a Jew? A hope, as we saw in Sunday school this morning, is a confident expectation. What was the thing that all Jews confidently expected to happen and were waiting for? We saw this back in earlier places where Paul talks about being on trial for the hope and the resurrection. What was that Jewish hope? That Jewish hope was that God 
would send a Messiah through David, the son of David, and that that Messiah would come and that he would establish his kingdom, and that prior to the establishment of that earthly kingdom, that he would raise all of the Old Testament saints who had died expecting that kingdom, and that he would usher in all of the redeemed to enjoy the blessings and the power and the wealth and the wonder of that kingdom mediated over and ruled over by the son of David himself. That was the Jewish hope. That's what they expected. That's what they longed for. Paul says, I'm on trial for that hope. I'm on trial because I believe that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the unrighteous. I'm on trial because I hold to that same hope, looking forward to that same resurrection of Jesus Christ. Any self-respecting, God-loving, Orthodox Jew would have said, hey Paul, we're on your side. If you're on trial for the hope of our nation, we're right behind you. That's a brilliant move. It's true. It's just a strategic way of Paul saying, look, here's the central issue. Now, I want you to notice one of the things that's important here. Do you notice how Paul always brought it back around to the central issue? Notice how he did that? This is, he's the type of guy that you just, you, you get into a cab and the, and the, uh, driver would say, where are you going? Well, I'm going to the corner of First and, and Pine. Where are you going when you die? Right? I mean, it's just every, no matter what the conversation was, no matter what topic Paul was talking about, always came back to what? Resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's it. Always come back to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. No matter what trial it was that we've looked at in the book of Acts, he'd tell his story, give his defense, and then, oh, by the way, this is about the resurrection. You guys want to talk about the resurrection? Let's get into the heart of this issue, which is the resurrection. Let's talk about Jesus. That's where Paul gets back to here. This is what happened to me. I went through the trials. I would have been released. I was forced to appeal to Caesar. I have no accusation against you people, but I want you to know I'm here because of the resurrection. That's what he wants to talk about. He never gets off mission, never gets off focus, never gets off target. No matter what the opposition did, no matter what the enemy throws in his way, it's always right back to the main focus. Let's talk about Christ. You know how easy it is for you and I to get off focus and off mission, to make the little things the big things and forget the big things, and to get distracted by the battle and to get distracted by the things that the enemy throws in our way and get distracted by discouragement and forget about the gospel and get concerned with all of these little things? Not Paul. Not Paul. Everything was about the gospel. And it was like this large magnet. And no matter where the conversation went, no matter what happened, it all eventually came right back to the gospel. And that's where he stopped. I'm on trial today for the hope of the resurrection. That's why I wear these chains. I wear these chains because of the Jewish Messiah. Would you like to hear about him? Well, look at their interest in Paul beginning in verse 21. They said to him, We've never re- neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren come here and reported or spoken anything bad about you. Paul, you got a clean slate as far as we're concerned. We haven't heard anything about you. There's nobody that's come here from the land of Israel that's slandered your name. We haven't received any letters about you from the brethren in Judea. Now, does that mean that they had never heard of Saul of Tarsus, Paul the Apostle before? Oh, no, they most certainly had. Of all the people in Christendom in that day, the Apostle Paul was the most well-known. I'm sure they had heard about him. But what they're saying is, as far as slander, as far as accusations against you, we haven't heard anything ill concerning you. Now you may ask, how is it possible that these guys could raise these accusations in Jerusalem and that Paul could get to Rome and none of that rumor, none of those accusations had followed him or even preceded him? How is that possible? Because he was one of the last people to leave late in fall from the port at Caesarea. Do you remember that? Probably one of the last ships to leave, Paul was on. And then, by the grace of God, he got blown across the sea over to the island of Malta. What a wonderful thing that was that God did that. Put him right at the doorstep of the Roman Empire, so the first thing in spring, he could get to Rome before anybody else, before even the mail could get there. Paul was there. 
Isn't that wonderful? Beautiful? Well, you thought that storm was a curse, wasn't it? No, Paul was able to get there because of that storm before anybody else did. So when he tells this story, they say, we haven't heard anything about you. Don't know anything about you. But they say, verse 21, we have heard about this sect, this thing called a sect, the Christians, the way. We have heard about them, and we know that they are spoken against everywhere. We do know something about what you represent, and Paul We want to hear your views on this because he's an intellect, he's a scholar, he's a former rabbi, he's a popular Christian preacher. We want to hear what you have to say about this sect because the only thing we know about it is that everywhere we go, everywhere it's at, it's spoken evil against. Now verse 22 is a kind of a stunning verse and I want to camp on that for a second. The fact that Christianity was spoken evil against. How do we get to that point? Do you remember in Acts chapter 5? After Ananias and Sapphira, Luke says that all of the people, nobody dared to join the disciples quickly because all of the all of the people held the apostles in reverence and honor. They were scared of them and they revered them and they honored them. And one of the things that made the Jewish authorities mad was that every time Peter and John went to the temple, the people came to listen to them teach. And that really made mad the Pharisees and the Sadducees who liked to have people come to them to hear them teach. But now there was this new group, and they went and saw the apostles instead. And in the early chapters of the book of Acts, the apostles were well-liked and well-loved. But then we get to Acts chapter 12, and we find out that Herod had put James to death with the sword. And this pleased the people so much that Herod wanted a sort of a double feature. He was going to arrest Peter, put Peter to death, because that would make people even happier. How do we go from the apostles being well-loved and well-liked in the early stages of the book of Acts, to it pleasing the people to put to death the apostles by Acts 12, and then we get to Acts 28, and what do we find out? Everywhere it was, it was spoken against. How do you get from one point to the other? Why is it that Christianity had a bad reputation? I'll, I'll tell you why they had a bad reputation in a second, but I want you to I want you to consider something. The end of verse 22 just totally blows out of our minds two myths. Two myths. And I know that any groups this size, there are probably several of you, maybe a handful of you, that are holding on tightly in your heart to one of these two myths. Let me let me just dispatch them. Verse 22, we know that they are spoken against everywhere. Myth number one. Myth number one. Have you ever heard anybody say to you, oh, those were the good old days? Maybe you've thought, oh, those were the good old days, right? Those were the good old days. Let me, let me ask you a question. When were the good old days? By the way, Solomon in Ecclesiastes says that type of a statement is a foolish and vain statement. Do not say, why were the former days better than these, Solomon says, because there's nothing new under the sun. So what were the good old days? Were the good old days back when we had prayer in schools? And racism and segregation? Were those the good old days? Or were the good old days even farther back when women couldn't vote? Or were the good old days back in the 20s when Christianity was at its lowest ebb almost ever in this nation? Or were the good old days back before the 20s, back in the colonial days, you know, during the times of Jonathan and Sarah Edwards, when the infant mortality rate was almost 100%, and there were entire cities where women would give birth to five, six, seven, eight, nine children and lose them all before any of them got to be a year old? Were those the good old days? Were the good old days back before we had running water and electricity? Or were the good old days back during the Reformation when Christians were persecuted by the Catholics? The Inquisition, was that the good old days? Let's go back farther. How about the Dark Ages and the Crusades? Were those the good old days? Or were the good old days prior to 300, back when Christians were persecuted by ten different Roman emperors for almost 300 years and they lived in catacombs? Were those the good old days? When were the good old days and on what planet did they happen? 
The only people who want to live in the past are the people who have forgotten what the past is like. And they have this idealized utopian vision and they watch far too much Little House on the Prairie and they think that life back then was all about little girls running down the hillside and falling down in the daisies. <laughs> that was life to live. Those were the good old days, friends. There's nothing new under the sun. And you go back all the way to the early days and the golden years of the church and what do you find? You find the church at Corinth with all of its problems and you find Christianity spoken against everywhere. Those were the good old days. There are no good old days. They don't exist. You, you can't go back to the early church and say, I wish it was like that. Listen, friends, life was hard for the Christians in the first century. Really hard. Why? Because the gears of persecution are just starting to grind in Rome. And here's where we get it, because First Peter was written just a few years after the book of Acts ends. First Peter was written, and Peter says, you're suffering, and you're suffering intensely, because Nero had just flipped his lid and was starting to light Christians on fire to torch and to light up his garden parties. And here we get a glimpse of what was just beginning to happen. It's spoken against everywhere. Matthew Henry says, It is, has been always the lot of Christ's holy religion to be spoken against everywhere. There's a second myth that this explodes. And that is the myth, and some of you probably hold this one too, that says in order to reach our world, the world has to respect us. The world has to love us. The world has to like us if we're going to reach it. Baloney. Baloney. You know what verse 22 tells us? Verse 22 tells us that the Christian gospel was established in every heart of the Roman Empire, in the city of Rome itself, in every major commercial center, in every major city, in every major seaport across the entire empire. In a course of 30 years, all of that, while the Christians were hated, they were out of step with Rome, they did not have the favor of the Roman emperor or the Roman senate. They did not have the media on their side. They weren't rightly portrayed in the media. Some of you think, man, if we could just get our politicians to love us, and if we could just get the media to respect us, and if we could just get the world to love us and to like us and to admire us, if we could just be like the world and somehow change and morph and be more acceptable to them, if we could just get them to love us and like us and, and speak well of us and accurately represent us, then we could reach the world. It's not how it works. Not how it works at all. Why? It's our lot to be spoken against everywhere. There are brief periods, snippets, throughout the history of the church where Christianity enjoyed favor with everybody in all circles of life. Those are rare occasions. They're called revivals. But they're rare occasions. The rest of the time, we are spoken against everywhere. And the move is on amongst Christians to get Congress and the courts and everybody to love the church with the thinking that if we could just do that, then we could reach our world. That's not how it works. You watch the media, I'm sure, like you, and you say, why is it that it's only the idiots that get the airtime? It's the Christians with the smallest brains and the biggest mouths. They're the ones that get put on the television set. They're the ones that get five minutes to present their case, and they never do it right. They never accurately reflect what it is that we really believe or what it is that we really think or how it is that we really feel. Listen, folks, and this gets to the heart of the issue. You know why they were spoken against everywhere in Rome's day, and you know why we're spoken against today? It has to do with this thing called personal holiness. You cannot live a holy life and expect that unholy people will think well of you. You can't do that. You cannot live a righteous life. You cannot live a sanctified life. You cannot love God and love His Word and expect everybody to get along with you. Jesus said, the world will hate you because I took you out of the world and you don't belong to the world. And because of my election, because I chose you and I pulled you out of the world, the world is going to hate you. 
So get used to it, expect it, and deal with it. And don't expect the world to love you. There is one way to get the world to love the church, by the way. Surefire way. Know what it is? Get the church to act and look and sound and behave just like the world. You get the church to love the world, to model the world, to look like the world and act like the world, and the world will fawn over the church and love us. But friends, don't expect to live a holy life and have Congress like you. Don't expect to live a holy life and have the Supreme Court love you. Don't expect to live a holy life and expect to be well represented in the media. It doesn't work that way. Why? Because a holy people will garner the hatred of an unholy people. And those who walk in light will garner the hatred of those who walk in darkness. You know why the early church was hated by the world? Because they walked in holiness. And they loved each other, and they obeyed God's word, and they did what they needed to do. We have Christians today who think that if we could just get the church to look like the world, you know, we'll put some South Park cartoons up here on the wall, and then we'll preach a sermon off of the South Park cartoon. Or we'll play Forrest Gump or some other movie up on the wall, and then we'll preach a sermon from the movie. And the world will like us. Oh, baloney. The world mocks that type of stuff. You know the type of person that God uses? The holy people. You know how it is that Christianity spread from Jerusalem all the way to the city of Rome and to every corner of the Roman Empire in a little over 30 years? You know how that, you know how that happened? It happened because the people were holy and God used the holy people and consequently the world hated them. And so when Paul got to Rome, guess what he found? Everywhere there's Christianity, you're spoken against. So friends, two things. Don't buy into the lie that there were good old days when everything was grand and glorious and the church enjoyed a heyday or a golden age. Not true. And second, don't buy the lie that in order to reach the world, you have to be like the world and be loved by the world. The more the world hates you and the more the world hates us, the more effective is the church. That's the truth. The more the world hates us, the more effective we are, provided that their hatred is directed at us because we're a holy people. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your grace and your goodness to us. We thank you for how your word changes our hearts and our lives and and is so instructive to us about how we ought to live and what we ought to expect. We thank you that you give us the grace to obey you, and we pray today that you would indeed make us a holy people. Give us the grace to reach our neighbors and to not compromise and to not love the world, but to love you and your word above all things, that we might be changed by it and that we might see the world changed by it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.